The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. All right, well, let us pray, and then we will turn our attention to our topic this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the opportunity to come together now and to remember uh, to recount the wonderful works that you have worked in this world, even in this small tributary of your kingdom of God. We thank you, O Lord, for our spiritual forefathers, for their faithfulness and their willingness to go even to the ends of the earth in their own day. And we pray, O Lord, that as we consider the work which they did, that we would be reminded of the great crowd of witnesses that surrounds us and that we would be spurned all the more to run our race faithfully. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, before I get into the topic at hand, I did feel like it was important for you to get to see some of the slides that Tim had last week that you weren't able to see. So I've pulled this up for you now. Um, the first one that you're looking at here is a map of immigration. It's a map of immigration at the bottom in the red uh, marks uh, Highlander immigration to the Carolinas. And you can see that coming in through Wilmington. It's not quite marked correctly, but you can see there Cross Creek, which is current Fayetteville. Uh, and then you see up from Ulster, uh, up uh, at the top, and you see their movements and how they uh, came down uh, the Great Ragon Road, as we heard last week, and then into the middle part of North Carolina and South Carolina, and uh, began many churches there. So I want to show you some of this uh, material. I think it's I think it's helpful to get a visualization. Um, this is a map of the Highlands. Uh, and these are some of the churches. So he had put together a few pictures of the churches just so you'd have some idea what some of these things look like. Uh, this is the Black River Congregation. As far as, as far as a group that was meeting, they weren't an organized congregation, but they met as early as 1740 and even before that, a very, very early congregation of Scottish Highlanders in North Carolina. And here are some pictures I had of the inside of that, that church. Um, and I threw this one in for, not for self-promotion, just because it was, a, it was a great day. I got to preach in this congregation. I had my wife take a picture of me. <laughs> um, one of the oldest congregations in North Carolina. And I also brought this up to remember that as we talk about some of these old congregations, you know, this is PCUSA Church, but these are gospel people. They still are. And we forget about that. But a lot of these folks out there in the middle of nowhere, gathering together, they still read their Bible faithfully. They still pray. They won't sound preaching. They just can't get it. They can't get it. That's something we ought to remember. And we really we, we ought to pray about that. Some of these brothers and sisters, they, they haven't been well trained. They don't know what's going on. And they're being misled. And so they're happy to get gospel preaching when they can get it. Here's a great example of what an early church building would have looked like. This is from the top, and this is uh, a picture um, from the bottom, as it were. Uh, this is the Brown March Presbyterian Church, and this is the original building from the 1800s. And this is a great example of what an early Presbyterian church would have looked like at the time. It looks kind of like a barn. Uh, if you were to go in, you would see the, the, the seats. They're, they're seated this way, kind of in a a circle around the, the pulpit with the pulpit in the middle, and usually a wood stove of some sort there to keep everybody alive when it got really cold. So. There's great stories about snakes coming in these churches. We don't have time to recount that, but really uh, entertaining, <laughs> entertaining times. 
This is the old Bluff Church. Uh, this church is in Fayetteville, or right outside of Fayetteville. Uh, this congregation was pastored by a man by the last name of Campbell. Uh, Mr. Campbell had a, an interesting encounter with George Whitfield in Pennsylvania and was actually brought into the ministry by George Whitfield and then later brought to preach to this group of Highlanders because he was able to speak the language. And so he came down and, and preached at this church and established uh, this old bluff church there, which is a, a very, very old congregation there in Fayetteville. And this is the last church that Hugh McAdden ministered at. This is the Red House Church up in Orange County, North Carolina. After McAdden pastored down in Duplin County, uh, he came up and spent the last years of his ministry establishing churches in Orange County. There are several there to this day that came from his ministry. And this is actually, he's buried behind this, behind this church. Then this is McAdden's journey. Uh, that Tim has drawn out for us here. You get an idea. He comes out of Pennsylvania down through the Great Rat, uh, Wagon Road and then through uh, western North Carolina into South Carolina, back up through Fayetteville, down to Wilmington, and then back back up the way he came. Quite a, quite a journey in 1750 on horseback. It took him about a year to do that. Okay. And the other slides I didn't know enough to explain, so sorry, Tim. All right. So we're back to, to where we were at the last time um, I was teaching, and we had left off at the old side, new side controversy because uh, I was dragging a little bit. Um, I gave you some homework, though. I don't know if you remember that or not. Uh, but to go and to think about the old side, new side controversy and to consider you know, what side of that debate you would have been on. So I'm interested to hear now what your thoughts are. Don't you hate homework? Don't everybody talk at once. Can you summarize? No. <laughs> Your homework. What, you want me to do the homework for you? I see. Um, yes, exactly. Yes. Yes, that's right. So uh, just to, to, to remind you, uh, the new side, old side controversy was, was a controversy that was started in response to the Great Awakening. So you remember that when the Great Awakening comes along, there are Presbyterians in the United States, churches already established, Presbyterians, and even at Senate. Uh, and when the, the Great Awakening takes place, uh, there are various responses to this in the Presbyterian church. So some men, uh, so we have here on the right, uh, Gilbert Tennant, and on the left we have Freylinghausen, who was a, a Dutch Reformed minister who was very influential. Sometimes he's called the forerunner to the Great Awakening. He was very, a very prominent minister uh, in, in the mid-Atlantic area, uh, preaching and, and encouraging revival. And, and Gilbert Tennant was a new sider, and Tennant believed very firmly in the goodness of the revival. He encouraged the revival. He actually began to disparage men who did not encourage the revival, and that's part of the problem that we'll see in a little bit. Um, but so you had men like that, like Gilbert Tennant. You also had men like we're going to talk about in a little while, John, uh, John uh, Thomas, uh, or Thompson, who was not a new sider, and saw, you know, not no value in the revivals, but he saw the revivals as causing a lot of trouble, and he saw the revival men as having a very low regard for uh, the polity of the Presbyterian Church and even the confessional standards of the Presbyterian Church, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit as we go along. Remember, if you will, John Thompson. We talked about this before when we were talking about the Adopting Act, when the American churches adopted the Westminster Confession of Faith and Shorter and Larger Catechism. 
it was John Thompson who was the one who encouraged that. He actually brought the overture uh, that ended up uh, bringing about the, the, the Presbyterian Church adopting the standards. Uh, and some of these new side men were actually men who opposed the Presbyterian Church adopting a confessional standard. So they're pro-revival, but they, they tend to have a lower view of the church and of the church's uh, standards. Does that, does that make sense? So Now you remember. There you go. Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you a break on your, your homework. I was really... Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, Greg wants to speak now. I, I, it's always when new things come up, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging thing, but I find myself uh, leaning towards the newsiders. Uh, I'm not sure I would, it's possible that your characterization of them not wanting uh, uh, stricter subscriptions is, is the case, but it also was then like um, Jonathan Edwards. When the Holy Spirit moves, he doesn't necessarily move in a neat and orderly way. And new people coming in who are genuinely showing fruits of the Spirit, the old siders tended not to identify with, um, were nonetheless people who needed greater order. So right. I wonder if some of the, the challenges there were if you made a requirement for greater order before, too soon, then you lose the ability to uh, pull in some of the Yeah, both of you brothers bring up a good point, which is is that it is, um, in some ways, it's difficult to make decisions about things like this. Uh, we have the benefits of hindsight. Uh, I would say, just so you're clear, some of the new side men, one particular new side man, Jonathan Dickinson, uh, is actually the chief opponent of subscription to the Westminster Standards. So... Um, the new siders were men who opposed the confession early on. But that doesn't discount them. You know, we might not agree with them on that part. And we might think they have things to say over here. I, I, I'm quite sympathetic to the new side myself, although I think John Thompson sometimes gets a, gets a, a hard hearing, as it were. Kathy? Were you pointing at me now? Yes. Okay. Just a quick request. Um, I know that I'm hard of hearing. I did check oh. my row. They could hear. Okay. But I know as one that's been home listening, it's you can't hear questions that are posed. So if there's a question, if you could try to maybe just quickly summarize. Sounds good. Stated, we'll do. Yeah, we'll do. Okay. All right. Good. So we won't we won't dwell on uh, deciding uh, this issue any longer. Uh, it took them a little while to decide it themselves. So there is a split though in the church. Just to remind you. Uh, that happens in 1741 in response to the Great Awakenings that really run from the early 1720s through uh, 1740. And there is a split in the church between the new side and the old side men. And there is a division between the two synods at that point. There's a synod of New York established that is new side. And it's composed of men uh, like Jonathan Dickinson, uh, Gilbert Tennant, but also men who are some of my personal heroes here like Samuel Davies. 
and Hugh McAdden, men who are really the apostles of Presbyterianism in the American South. Samuel Davies to Virginia, Hugh McAdden uh, to North Carolina. Um, and they were very aggressive uh, in their desire to reach out. And we were talking about that a little bit before we started the class. And that's one remarkable thing about the new side. They did go all over the place preaching. Uh, and that sometimes got them in trouble. Uh, one of the reasons why they went everywhere preaching is because sometimes they didn't think the old side ministers were actually converted. So they felt like it was, uh, you know, it, it was their burden to go into other men's congregations and to preach the gospel to them because their pastor wasn't a Christian. Those are some of the things that I think are less laudable about the new side. Sometimes they were no doubt correct, but other times, like in the case of John Thompson, I think they were, they were actually gravely mistaken, and they were very uncharitable to their brothers. This, in particular, Gilbert Tennant, uh, and in, in a sermon that he preached, which really leads to the division called The Dangers of an Unconverted Ministry. You can understand, while if you're an old side minister and you know, you're know you pastoring a church 10 miles away from a guy who preaches a sermon, basically implying that you're not a Christian and that you're a false teacher, you can understand why that would make you a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, and that was the kind of things, those were the kinds of things that were, that were happening. Now, to, to give credit where credit is due, at the reunion in the 1750s, Gilbert Tennant actually repents for preaching that sermon. And he actually comes back around and says, Brothers, I shouldn't have done that. I spoke unwisely. He was uncharitable. And, and he shouldn't have done it. And he, he admitted that. And, and I think, I think Tennant, he deserves a, a great deal of credit for the humility uh, that that must have taken after ha- causing really a huge schism in the church to be able to admit largely this was, uh, this was, this was my fault. Okay. So this is the new side, old side controversy. Uh, It it does uh, come to a conclusion, but much of what we'll cover right now uh, is going to take place within that time period. So here, very quickly, you can see a picture of Jonathan, or or, I'm sorry, George Whitfield preaching. And you can also see his travels. So George Whitfield, if you're not aware of this, was very important to the First Great Awakening. Um, Perhaps the awakenings were already beginning in the United States. You can see up here... Uh, Northampton is here, and Jonathan Edwards was a minister there. They had had a revival in the 1720s. Um, and revivals had begun to happen all over the place, but really uh, the, the, the first great awakening catches a good gust of wind uh, when George Whitfield comes. And Whitfield, you see, travels all around the colonies and goes up and down the eastern seaboard of what would become the United States, preaching the gospel to huge masses of people, and he actually aligns himself at this time with the New Side Presbyterians. Um, so he becomes friends with the tenants. Uh, there were multiple tenants, um, all from their father named William, who's important because he is the man who establishes what's called the Log College. Does anybody know what the Log College will become? Princeton. Yes, Princeton Seminary. Well, Princeton University, and then later there will come a seminary. So, yeah, so here we have the, the preaching of George Whitfield. Uh, but I do want to say something about John Thompson. So this is an old side leader. You notice here is his grave, and we have it here at the bottom. This is his grave in Morrisville, North Carolina. Now, Thompson was originally a minister in Delaware and in New Jersey and, and Pennsylvania. He's an old sider. So how does he end up in North Carolina? Well, because he's doing mission work. (laughs) He's going around preaching. 
And he's actually, possibly, the first settled Presbyterian minister in the state, or what would become the state of North Carolina. He comes and begins to, to preach the gospel in the early 1750s, even before McCadden comes through and makes his way. Now, that's interesting. So McCadden's new side, but, but here's John Thompson coming down and establishing churches and beginning to preach in what, you can't probably read this very well, but it says uh, he, he's the first permanent minister uh, to preach in what becomes uh, Concord Presbytery, which is the Peace USA Presbytery, or was the Peace USA Presbytery that was established around the city of, of Charlotte, North Carolina. If you know anything about Charlotte, North Carolina, you know that's still a hub of conservative Presbyterianism to this day. Um, so we, we shouldn't discount the old side man. John Thompson, I think, has a lot to offer to us. Not only should he be celebrated because he's the man who encouraged subscription to the confession, uh, but also his own evangelistic zeal was, was notable. Um, important to note here as well that he was a graduate of Glasgow University, and he was an Ulsterman. Uh, by birth. Now, this is something that doesn't get brought up a lot, but it's important to note about the, the old side, new side controversy. Uh, there were men who saw this controversy not primarily theological, uh, but ethnic. They saw this as a controversy between different ethnic groups. Okay? So, Jonathan Dickinson uh, and Samuel. Davies are good examples of this. Dickinson comes from New England. Uh, Davies comes from Wales. Well, he was a Welshman. A Welsh Baptist, actually, originally. Many people in the church thought that the old side, new side controversy was really just a debate between cranky Scottish and Irish people (laughs) and evangelistically motivated English and New England and you can, you can read about that. This actually pops back up during the old school, new school debate, which is much later. And Charles Hodge, of all people, has to address this issue in his writing, in, in his wonderful book, The Constitutional History of the Presbyterian Church in the United States. I think it's his magnum opus, but that's an unpopular opinion. Um, people talk about it, systematic theology. It's like it's so great. But anyway... Um, But he's even dealing with this issue then, pointing out that the issue is not primarily ethnic. The issue is theological. Uh, But it did have this this ethnic dimension to it. So I just wanted to to note that um, it's no mistake, maybe, that that Thompson ends up down south amongst a bunch of Scotch-Irishmen, (laughs) as opposed to some other places that he might have ended up. Okay, so that is very, very quickly the old side, new side controversy. I want to move from talking about the controversy to a few personalities that were present in the church at this time. I've already largely covered Thompson. I don't, I don't want to spend a great deal more time on that. I did find a wonderful work about him uh, by the clerk of the session at First Presbyterian Church in Durham, of all places, who happened to be, this was in the 70s when he wrote this, but he happened to be his great-great-great-great-great-grandson, uh, which I thought was interesting. And he wrote uh, a little brief thing about Thompson, and he has this wonderful quote in there from Charles Augustus Briggs, who's not exactly somebody that I would want to be talking about me the way he's talking about Thompson here, considering he himself is, a, is really an arch-liberal in the Presbyterian Church later. But he says this of Thompson. He says, Thompson was a narrow and opinionated man, and he became the father of all discord and mischief 
in the American Presbyterian Church. Now, mind you, Briggs is a liberal. And what Briggs is doing is picking up on a theme that I tried to lay out a little bit the last time we met. There are some who think of the Presbyterian Church as a broad church. And they think that that's the chief characteristic of it. Briggs would be really a classic example of somebody who thought that way. Thompson was not a broad churchman. He was not a broad churchman. He was a narrow churchman. He had a very clear understanding of Presbyterianism, and he, and he wanted the Presbytery and the General Assembly and Senate to adhere to it. And, and that, is, that is something that we'll see over and over and over again. So, okay. Uh, Thompson, just a few more things about him. His sermons were like continually denounced by, by people like Gilbert Tennant, uh, Samuel Finley, uh, Samuel Blair. Basically, if you were the president at any point of Princeton University, you really didn't like this guy. It's uh, remarkable, actually. <laughs> um, very new side institution. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, he does, though, do some other things that are, I think, of note. He lays the groundwork for the University of Delaware whenever he's up in Delaware. He also ends up laying some of the groundwork for what will become Hampton City College which is an extremely important educational institution in Southern Presbyterianism. Later we'll, we'll talk about that. Very important also in the, the rise of Princeton Seminary. But he was, he was big on education, and, and he was really concerned, as you might imagine, about the character and the theology of ministers in the church. That's why he was big on education. Uh, one of the reasons that he began to agitate for subscription to the confession is because there were men in the Presbyterian church who... Not only were they not Presbyterian, uh, they were barely Orthodox Christians. And you have to understand that. We, we would tend to think about this error of Presbyterianism as being like a golden error. You know, like everybody agrees. You know, we're just, you just walk up to somebody and they're responding to every question you ask them with larger catechism quotations. That's not the case at all. Indeed, some men, for instance, there was a man whose name is escaping my mind, but he was the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia around the time John Thompson began to agitate for the standards and for subscription to the standards, who himself was beginning to teach Unitarianism. Okay? This is not, <laughs> this is not a mild error. There are serious problems in places in the Presbyterian Church at this time. And, and it's important to realize that. It's very important to realize that, so that we see these guys not, you know, not as being some sort of doctrinaire, you know, legalists or something like that, but people who genuinely want to protect Orthodox Christianity in the church. Now, that's what's motivating them like this. Okay, so let's move on from Thompson. I could talk about him all day. There's not a lot really out there in publication about him, so it's difficult to find material on him. He's largely been attacked, <laughs> um, the new side kind of won in the end, and, and the, the side that wins, they, well, they tell the history. Right? So. But it, to me, it just seems so unusual to hear that there were those who would be opposed to uh, subscribing to the Westminster standards. Yeah. Ed, can you summarize what the argument on the other side is? Well, I'm so glad you said that. Uh, there's two things that are important to note there. The, the first thing that's important to... Uh, yes. <laughs> My wife is rebuking me from the, from the background. That's right. Good job. That's right. Okay. Yes. He was asking, why would people object to subscribing to the confession? That's a great question. Uh, 
two things that we need to note. The first thing is, is that there had just been a debate in Ireland about subscription to the Confession. And there are people, maybe myself among them, although I'm not, care, you know, I'm not qualified to make a judgment like this, but I'll, I'll do it anyway, um, who think that the, the debates that take place in America are related to the Irish debates. So it's probably in some way because Thompson is from Ireland and he hears, hey, there are these people over there who object to the Westminster Standards and there was a whole fight that takes place and eventually there's a whole Presbyterian or Synod, Tim, that becomes, what, what are they called? I think it's called the object. Yeah, the non-subscribers or something like that, but they still exist today. They're liberal now. Shocker. Um, but they, uh, sorry, maybe that wasn't. But, um, but they, they refused to subscribe to the confession on the grounds that it was a man-made document. That's the exact same argument that will come from the lips of Jonathan Dickerson, the first president of Princeton. You can't subscribe to that. It's a man-made document. It's remarkable to hear Presbyterians speaking that way. Presbyterians who become heroes of the faith, really. But that's, that's the argument that they use. Uh, it's fairly remarkable. There's a wonderful uh, book here, Colonial Presbyterianism in the Princeton Theological Monograph Series. I know you guys are all familiar with that one. Um, but it has, some, it has some great articles in here. And one of them is about the debates that take place around the Adopting Act. And they lay it out very very clearly, and uh, it's, uh, it's rather strange to hear some of the founders of American Presbyterianism speaking that way. So, yeah, hard to, hard to believe. Uh, it's the same basic arguments that you'll see in the New School later, which is why Hodge brings all this material together in his constitutional history. Okay, all right, good question. Okay, so let's, let's move on to consider another personality. So we talked about Johnson, uh, John Thompson. We talked a little bit about... Uh, Jonathan Dickerson. Uh, I do want to talk about another very important colonial Presbyterian in America, and, and that is uh, John Witherspoon. And along with John Witherspoon, we want to talk about the development of Princeton College out of the Log College. So here we have uh, the, a picture of the Log College, a drawing, obviously. The Log College uh, has its origins uh, in William Tennant's uh, Log College in uh, Warminster, Pennsylvania. That's where it's at today. It wasn't called that then. Uh, and he establishes this around 1727. Now, William Tennant had come from Ireland, himself <laughs> faced a bit of opposition whenever he came to the, the Presbyterian Church in America. The reason why he faced some suspicion and opposition is because he had been ordained uh, according to the Episcopal Church in Ireland or, or, or by the bishop. <laughs> So he was actually ordained by a bishop in Ireland, and, and the presbytery was quite suspicious of him. They, they inter- very cautiously uh, and thoroughly interviewed him because of this issue. Uh, they were very suspicious that he was, he was secretly uh, an Episcopalian or even perhaps an Erastian. Uh, but it doesn't seem that he was. He, he came and he began to teach at this law college and ministers. Um, this college became very new side in its orientation. And this becomes a bit of a fight because William Tennant is pumping out students or pumping out candidates for the ministry from the Log College who are animated by new side principles. And they are coming into conflict very rapidly with men who were trained in New England at Harvard and Yale and men who were trained at Edinburgh and Glasgow. And eventually, the Senate actually has to 
make a statement about this, and they eventually say, I believe it's in 1739, uh, that you cannot graduate from a law college. You, you have to go to a theological seminary, either in New England or back in uh, the UK, or where we come UK. Um, so, so this is the origins, though, of the law college. Now, that is right before the split. When the split happens, the log college becomes the seminary of the new side. And so now they don't have the old siders to try to kind of rein them in, so they, ha- they can just send everybody to the log college or other log colleges that were established. And there were many similar institutions that were producing men for the ministry. This, I think, is very important to the growth of the new side. It is very difficult to tell a ministerial candidate, hey, we're really glad you're interested in the ministry. You're going to have to get on a boat and go to Edinburgh to study. Or even, you know, you have a guy from Virginia or North Carolina and you tell him, hey, you've got to go to to Yale or Harvard to study. It's much easier, especially at this time, and considering the location of the college in Pennsylvania, for them to go there or other like-minded institutions that were scattered around uh, parts of what were really at the edge of the backcountry at various times of the American frontier. Uh, and I think this is one of the things that gives the new side a great advantage over the old side as far as producing ministers and, and eventually establishing churches. Because as Tim mentioned last week, one of the great problems of Presbyterianism in America is that we can't produce enough ministers. Uh, we just can't do it. And especially later when the Baptists and the Methodists come along. Uh, the old saying goes that the Methodists will ordain any... Well, I'll try to make it nicer. They'll ordain anybody on a horse, and then the Baptist will come along, and he'll ordain the horse. <laughs> and Presbyterians and Anglicans won't do that. So they don't, they don't produce churches and ministers the same way. It's not a very nice saying about the Baptist and the Methodist. I went to a Baptist seminary. I used to use that class sometimes. Didn't go over well. <laughs> it's all in good fun. It was nice compared to what they said about me. So, <laughs> so okay. So we have this educational institution uh, being formed. It's going to continue uh, in the way that it was formed for, for a while. And then after uh, a time... Uh, Princeton itself uh, is formed, and really this is formed out of a desire to have uh, an educational institution that will be suited for the New Side Senate. Here, of course, they have a much a much newer building than what we're talking about at this time, but this is Nassau Hall at Princeton, and of course the figure that we're headed towards talking about, uh, John Witherspoon. Now, when Princeton is formed, it's formed during the split, and the first president of the college is Jonathan Dickerson who, as I noted earlier, was a chief opponent to subscribing to the Westminster Confession. Now, it's important for us to make a a distinction at this point between the college and the seminary, though. So this is the college we're talking about here. Um, The college, I I believe, had a slightly different character than the Princeton Seminary would come to have. And obviously, by the time we get to men like the University of Machen, Princeton, or even Charles Hodge, for that matter, Princeton has a reputation for being a rock-solid, Reform institution that is dedicated to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger shorter catechism. But they're not only dedicated to that, they still have that new side energy, if you will. And, and that was the case at Princeton for many, many years. They, they were able to combine, after 
the merger between the old and the new side, really the principles of both, I think, in some ways. They, they both remain steadfastly committed to the Word of God and to the confession. And they also remain steadfastly committed to evangelism, foreign missions, and uh, experiential preaching, for lack of a better word. And um, as things progress, we'll talk about Westminster Seminary, and we'll see that, interestingly, Westminster picks up certain aspects of that, but not, not others. It's interesting, John Murray notes that many years later, that there was a few elements that Princeton had that seemed to really be missing from Westminster, no doubt because of the men who came. Uh, where they were all the Old Testament, the New Testament faculty. There were no homiletics professors <laughs> and things like that that came over. It's an interesting thing to note uh, how the character of Princeton Seminary and Westminster would be slightly different in that way. But, okay. So, Princeton is formed, and uh, shortly after it's formed, they begin to run through presidents. And it was often said uh, that it's not a good thing for your health to be called as the president of Princeton College um, because they were dropping like flies. <laughs> they did not last very long at all. Um, does anybody know some of the... You're implying that they, they died quickly. They died quickly. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Dropping like flies, that I guess that's a, that's a... That's one of my redneck sayings. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for that. Yeah, that means dead. Um, okay. Does anybody know any of the early presidents of Princeton Seminary other than Jonathan Dickinson? I already told you that. Jonathan Edwards. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Jonathan Edwards is is one. Does anybody know how? Just for interest, does anybody remember how Edwards died? Smallpox vaccine. Maybe that's a touchy thing to bring up, but uh, yeah, yeah, he got a smallpox inoculation and then and then died. Okay, so how does John Witherspoon come to Princeton? Well, there were some men who were trustees of Princeton who had visited England and Scotland, and they they came across this man, John Witherspoon, and they were extremely impressed with him as a minister and as a scholar. And they began to petition him uh, to come and to help develop Princeton College. Um, it takes him a number of years to persuade him of that, but eventually uh, he does come over and he does begin uh, the work of really building up uh, Princeton College. Um, Witherspoon is a very interesting character. He, he was not just a minister, but he was also interested in, in other things. In particular, he was deeply interested in politics. So, does anybody know the only minister who signed the Declaration of Independence? John Witherspoon. That's right. That's right. And many of the founding fathers are educated at Princeton by John Witherspoon. And he not only teaches them the principles of biblical Christianity, he also teaches them many of the, the essential elements of the Scottish Enlightenment particularly when it comes to government and governmental theories. And and so Witherspoon becomes extremely important to the development of the new United States. Um, He he has a massive influence. Uh, Obviously, he has a massive influence on the church. He will be the first moderator of the first, or he'll be the moderator of the first General Assembly of the church in 1789. Uh, But he also just, he, he exercises a huge amount of influence more broadly than that. 
uh, as well. Another interesting thing about him, and I'm not going to talk too much about this, but he, he is often considered one of the men who brings uh, common sense realism to the United States, which is a particular philosophical bent, uh, patterned after the thinking of a man by the name of Thomas Reed, who was a Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, but a Christian philosopher. He was uh, basically a, a very conservative Enlightenment thinker, uh, but he had a very uh, interesting system uh, of philosophical thought. And actually, there are thinkers today who claim to operate in the, the vein of Thomas Reed. The most famous, some of you may have heard of Alvin Plantinga. Now, he would be a man who says that he stands in the line of, of Reed, as well as in the line of Calvin, for that matter. Uh, but, but anyway, so this is uh, something about John Witherspoon. It has an immense influence. And we could talk about John Witherspoon for the rest of the time, but I'm going to try to make it through my material, so I'm not going to do that. Okay. Another personality uh, that's very interesting to consider because he brings together a lot of things at this period would be a, a man by the name of Ashable Green. Uh, Ashable Green, just to give you an understanding of where he comes from, he, he comes from New England Puritan stock, and he's going to become a Presbyterian. But this will give you an idea of kind of the cross-pollination. Ashable Green's maternal grandfather was the first president of Yale. Okay, if you know anything about Yale, Yale was established to combat liberalism that was starting to develop at Harvard. So he comes from a conservative Puritan background, a congregational background. Uh, but he uh, comes into the Presbyterian Church as well as his father. His father actually becomes one of the founding trustees of Princeton. You think about the family lineage here. You have the first president of Yale and one of the founding trustees of Princeton. You know, that's your father and your grandfather. This is a, an American, you know, aristocrat, really, in a lot of ways. Uh, he graduates as a valedictorian of his class at Princeton. And this is interesting. When he gives his valedictory address, who shows up? Well, the whole Continental Congress shows up to hear Mr. Ashable Green uh, give his valedictorian speech. It's, you know, again, uh, this is probably because of who he was, uh, but also it tells you something about the nature of the country at that time and how important these institutions were to it, like Princeton and Yale and others. Starting in 1792, though, he actually becomes the chaplain of the Congress. And that involves a weekly meeting with George Washington. So every week, Ashable Green would meet with George Washington and he would discuss various things that are going on in the country, uh, particularly national sins, as he referred to them. He talked quite a bit uh, about slavery. And he actually later is going to become... Uh, the author of the 1880 Peace USA Statement on Slavery, which is a fascinating statement because it's extremely anti-slavery. That's 1818. Things are going to change as times progress. But in 1818, the Presbyterian Church is basically uniformly south and north against slavery. It's an interesting thing to note there. Afterwards, he becomes the president of Princeton, as you did in those days. Um... He also is involved in combating Indian removal. So in these conversations that he has with Washington and others, he seeks to convince them that they shouldn't be kicking Indians off their land. He thinks this is unethical. I, you know, yeah. <laughs> Seems kind of obvious now, but uh, he, was, uh, he was kind of a singular voice on that issue at the time. But anyway, so this, is, this Ashable Green character, I think he, he, he illustrates for us very well 
what kind of men we're dealing with. These are very multifaceted men. Uh, these are men who are at home in the pulpit. They're also at home addressing Congress. Uh, they're at home teaching, you know, just as much as, uh, you know, teaching a university class as much as teaching a Sunday school class. You know, these are, these are fairly incredible characters who are beginning to populate the galaxy, as it were, of American Presbyterianism. And they, they lead uh, the Presbyterian Church to become really one of the most prominent churches in the United States. And, of course, for years, the PCUSA would be just that. It would be the church, or a church, along with the Episcopal Church, that had a great deal of social capital. And, you know, a lot of that has gone away at this point. Uh, but there was a time where it wasn't unusual to see Presbyterian ministers having dinner with George Washington. And it wasn't unusual for George Washington to be interested in what they had to say. It's an interesting thing to consider. Okay. I'm out of time, aren't I? Okay, very, very, very quickly. I do want to get to the First General Assembly. The First General Assembly, so remember up to this point we've had the Senate. So we have the Senate of New York and the Senate of Philadelphia. Uh, in 1789, though, the church gets to the point where it's able to have a general assembly. And at this general assembly, we've already noted, it's moderated by John Witherspoon. Uh, some interesting things that happen at the general assembly. Uh, first thing is they write and are responded to uh, by George Washington. Again, here's George Washington. Uh, they write to him a letter uh, expressing thanks uh, for him and for his work as the first president. Uh, he responds to them in kind, uh, showing his appreciation for their kind words. Um, it really, it's, it's quite an interesting thing. You can go and, and look that up if you, if you would like to. Uh, the, the General Assembly also seeks to address some of, the, uh, some of the cloudiness of the Adopting Act. So if you remember, when the Adopting Act is adopted, uh, it requires ministers to subscribe not to the whole confession, that's debatable, but that's the way it came to be interpreted, but to essential and necessary articles of the confession. Uh, the General Assembly seeks to clarify this. And in the, in the context of clarifying it, what they come up with is that you must subscribe to the system of doctrine contained in the Scripture, or contained in the Confession. Um, I'll give you a hint. That did not really clarify it. <laughs> and, and the Church would continue to fight about confessional subscription. Um, as we've noted, those fights happen today. Um, but here, again, we can see already they had a lot of issue with this, and they were trying to figure out how exactly... Uh, to clarify it. And then very last thing I want to bring up is that the only disagreement that makes its way into the minutes of that first General Assembly is a disagreement over worship. Um, And it comes because of this man, Adam Rankin, who comes from Kentucky, and he seeks to come and rebuke uh, the PCUSA Uh, for, let me get this language right, falling into the great and pernicious error in public worship of uh, abandoning the use of Rouse's version, that's the 1650 Scottish Psalter, and using Isaac Watts's version instead. And so here uh, we begin to see what will become a great controversy in the church. Even at this early day, we start to see it happening. And that's the controversy over psalmody. Uh, this controversy will really lead to what we now know as the ARP, at least, in the, at least the way it exists today. There were already associate Presbyterians and Reformed Presbyterians in the United States, but they hadn't gained very much traction. This controversy is going to pour gasoline on them. 
and they are going to explode in growth because people begin to leave PCUSA churches because they're using hymns and, in some cases, just not strict inter... Well, it's debatable whether or not the Scottish Psalter is a strict understanding of the Psalms, but they're, they're moving towards paraphrases in the Psalms. And people begin to leave the church because of that and flood into ARP and what would become RPCNA churches. This is a church here, obviously, an ARP church, Ebenezer ARP, which was pastored by this man who brought that complaint. Okay, so here's our chart of American Presbyterianism, and that's where we're at. So, <laughs> so <laughs> as you can see, I made a lot of headway today. All right, I've got to let you go. Uh, we haven't gone as far as I would like to have gone, but that's where we're at. Okay, so we've made it to a little bit further than that, about 1789. All right.